Uh, if you'll uh, open up your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Mark uh, 12, uh, verses 13 through 27. Then they said to him, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, to catch him on his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some Sadducees who said, who say, There is no resurrection came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring of, for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they are neither married nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that, uh, that you offer up to us. We thank you that, uh, that we come to you with a heart yearning to learn. Uh, we thank you that, uh, that you use Jackie as your vessel. Uh, we, we just pray that, uh, that we would, would be filled with your word. We say these things in your blessed name. Amen. Isn't God good? All the time? You guys are all right. <clears throat> we come, uh, we c- I didn't think that was that funny, but <laughs> we come today to uh, a section of scripture I call the traps. In, uh, on the 10th day of Nisan, when people were preparing for the Passover, they would come into Jerusalem and they would choose a lamb. They'd choose a sacrifice. And so they'd come in and they'd, they'd want to get the best, right? We want to offer God our best. So they would, they would go to the temple proper where they had a, a place where they could choose the livestock. And they could purchase a lamb that they could sacrifice, that they could offer. Now, once they purchased that lamb, 
it would spend several days being examined by the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees. They would examine this lamb to make sure that the lamb was good enough to offer. You see, God said that the lamb had to be perfect. No spot, no blemish, just right. On the 10th day of Nisan, while people were going around and looking for their lamb for Passover, they noticed, standing there on the Temple Mount, a ruckus, a lot of noise going on. And they turn around behind them, looking out the, the eastern gate, what's called the Golden Gate. They look out the eastern gate, which looks straight over to the Mount of Olives, and you see this winding road, and they could see this procession, a lot of people coming down that winding road, carrying palm branches and laying them down, and they were shouting messianic titles at a man who was entering into the eastern gate of the temple. They were shouting, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All titles for Messiah. He came walking in on the 10th of Nisan. And he cleansed the temple. Remember? From all those who were buying and selling. And as he cleansed the temple for the next better part of four days, he is examined by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now they think their purpose in examining him is so that they can put him to death and get rid of him. But the purpose is that mankind would see the parallel as they look at Jesus Christ and ultimately his final judge, Pilate, will stand up before all the people and say, this man is innocent. Or, he's without spot and blemish. Perfect sacrifice for the sins of the people. So today, we find Jesus facing the trap. They're always trying to find some problem, something wrong with who he is, who he claims to be, and what he's done. So they begin first with one that everybody can kind of get behind. Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll come to Jesus and ask him what he thinks about paying taxes. I mean, if he actually cares about keeping the people with him, he'll have to say, no, you shouldn't pay taxes. Don't pay your taxes. And then we'll get the Romans after him, and that's how we'll get rid of him. That's their plan. Take a look at what Scripture says. It says in verse 13, They sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. It's interesting as we look at this verse, we want to understand what's going on. So who's they? But we back up a little bit and we see that, that Jesus had offended some of the chief priests and leaders when he told the story of the vineyard. Do you remember? They knew that it was about them. But it doesn't really name them there. We've got to back up a, a little bit further back into chapter 11. And we look at chapter 11. It says the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the rulership of Israel. They're gathered together and they are the ones who sent. And they sent Pharisees and Herodians. Kind of funny. Pharisees were strict legalists. Herodians were as liberal as you could be. This, you want to put this in... In our language today, sent the Republicans and the Democrats together to go trap him. And you would say, really? Because, you know, they don't usually hang out together. Republicans do their thing. Democrats do their thing. Uh, I won't tell you what their thing is, but it's bad, whatever it is. And they, 
So they send Herodians. Now the Herodians were turncoats. The Herodians were Jews who backed Rome, the occupation of Rome. They backed them and they supported the tax. And the Pharisees hated the fact that they were under the, the rulership of Rome. They hated it absolutely. So you got a group that cannot see eye to eye. What brings those groups together? Simple. One thing. The hatred of Jesus Christ. Is that something new to us? Look, it don't matter who somebody is, what their background is. I know a lot of people get worked up about refugees and ISIS coming over. It don't matter. Really? We grow them ourselves. Do you not know that? Do you, do you not pay attention to the school shootings? We grow them. We make them. How do we make them? Well, we're born broken, we're messed up hearts, jacked up, and we are all automatically in a rebellion against God. And when we see the truth of God around us, it, it can drive people to such a hatred that all they want to do is silence the voice. So you might go to school one day with a gun and start asking the question, are you a Christian? And if they say yes... Bang. Was that new? Jesus said, a teacher is not greater than his students. If they hate me, they will hate you too. But he said, don't be afraid. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So the world thinks they've done something amazing at the college campus. The haters of God think they did something amazing. You know, they don't hardly talk about it, right? They don't, the whole concept of shooting Christians, what's the big deal? Our president surely won't care. What's the big deal? They think maybe the forces of evil, we got them. And all you did is say them to Jesus, they're fine. They're okay. They're with him. No more pain or sorrow. It's nothing new. The hatred of all things God. What do you think these people standing before Jesus are trying to do? You get it, right? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. They can't until God says it's okay. But until that point, that's their desire. So it says, they come together. Strange bedfellows. Right? Look at Luke. Luke 20, 20 says this. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. There's a lot of people still do that in church today, isn't there? A lot of people still do that. What is it? What is he saying? They sent spies. What was their purpose? To pretend to be righteous. They're going to pretend. Jesus is not that lame. We're not going to pretend ourselves into the kingdom of God. Only the real go. Pretenders don't. Only the real go. And so they pretend to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to, to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. They want to kill him. That's their plan and purpose. Look what it says in Matthew 22, 15 and 16. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard 
the person of men. So they come with flowery speech. But what's their goal? To take them down. The sooner we get the idea that we are in a hostile environment, the better it's going to be for us. Stop thinking that, that this place is, is, is going to be uh, fostering to our desires if we just sit around and, and don't do anything. I, I think Jesus wants to give us victory in history while we're here, but we have to be willing to engage the culture. We've got to be willing to engage. Now, some people think that the way that we want to engage the culture is to stand on the other side with guns and get rid of them. But you have a hard time finding that in the teachings of Christ, won't you? What did he say? Love your enemies. Oh, do good to those who despitefully use you, who hate you and use you. Do good to them. That's what he calls us to. He gave us one commission, right? Coming at the end of Matthew, what did he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, so go therefore. And do what? Make disciples of who? All nations. All men. What's our job? To take Jesus Christ. You want to change your world, then we got to get out from in front of TV and off the couch and start sharing Jesus Christ with people so that the Holy Spirit can move into their life and they change. You can write all the laws you want, but that's not going to fix it. You can do all the picketing you want. I don't know that that's going to fix it. What's going to fix it is when you take the reality of your faith, live that in your life, and you share it with another. That changes your world. Or we can just sit around and wait for it to get better. How do you think that's going to work? When's the last time you sat around hoping that the weeds in your front yard were just going to go away by themselves? Man, I hope the... I can't believe they... Uh, the only hope you got is a severe frost. And I'm not sure that works. I have seen my weeds still green. My garden dead in a doornail. But the weeds just green as they can be. Still going. I got to go out and do something about it. So how do we do something about it? We share the love of Christ. We share the message. Really, it's, a, it's the impetus behind our class on Thursday nights and going through apologetics and learning to defend the faith and share the faith. That's the purpose. So that we are able, so that we feel like we have something to say and something to offer and we're not tongue-tangled wondering what we should do. But Jesus is never tongue-tangled. Scripture says here that they sent, right? It says they sent them. What's that word sent? It's apostoleon. It means to be sent with a purpose. So we look then to the, next, to the next verb. What were they sent to do? To catch him, right? To catch him. That word catch is the same word you would use for a hunter catching his prey. So, so the Sanhedrin put together a hunting party to go out and catch Jesus. They're going to go catch him. They're going to go catch him with his words. They're going to go catch him with his concept. The purpose, ultimately, to kill. So it says in verse 14, So when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you care about no one. Now, that doesn't mean you don't care about anybody. It means, it, what they're saying is you don't elevate one above another. They knew that Jesus was not a respecter of persons. So he was more than happy to talk with the low or the high. You get what I mean? He was not not uptight if somebody was was homeless and dirty and just sitting there in the street. He could talk to them just as comfortably as he could talk to Herod. And he didn't elevate one above the other. So when it says you didn't care about anyone, he said you don't elevate. Everybody's on the same playing field. 
Isn't that good news that we're all in the same playing field with God? It's good news that we're all in the same playing field, but let me express this. While we're on the same playing field, none of us can touch him apart from Jesus Christ. None of us. None of us are good enough to have that relationship apart from the sacrifice that Christ gave for us. So he says, we know you are true. We know you care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. So this is what you call (laughs) buttering somebody up, right? You ever have somebody come out of the blue and just walk up to you and say, man, you're just such a neat guy. Boy, you're just so wonderful. You know how I know if somebody's buttering me up? They come up to me and they they say, Jackie, man, that beard is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Because, that's right, Noe, brother's in the beard. All right. So we, normally people come up to me and go, but how long are you going to go through this beard thing? And uh, it's funny because, because Kathy laughs. I, I have this part of my nature. I don't know if you guys have it. But I have this part of my nature that just enjoys annoying people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the secret is... You want to see the beard go away, man, you better start telling me how great it is. Because then I'm like, i got to cut that thing off. These people, I don't know what they're talking about. But in the meantime, they're, they were buttering him up. <laughs> they're buttering him up. Now, now I'm going to get all the compliments, right? They were, they were I can see through you, just like Jesus saw through them. In case you're wondering, Howard, stand up. Come on, brother. That's where I'm going. So you can either pray it grows fast. (laughs) But anyways, that has nothing to do with the word, so I'll stop. So they're buttering them up. They're trying to make sure that, that, that Jesus, you know, that they think, hey, man, we really think a lot about you, and we know you don't care about anybody. What they're really trying to do is to make him uh, answer the way they want him to. They want him to answer against Rome, okay? It's not like they're trying to pin him in a... In a dichotomy or, or, or on the horns of dilemma as some people say that's not i don't believe that's what they're trying to do they're trying to get him to go against rome they're saying you're not a respecter of people you treat the low and the high the same even caesar so we're pretty sure that we can get jesus to say stop paying taxes to caesar he's a dirtbag i mean who caesar's a horrible he's a killer he's a guy who who proclaims deity himself we know that jesus will side against him and as soon as he does we got him so they're buttering them up with it. They're setting the table. Oh, we know you don't respect people. We know that. And then they come to the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he knowing their hypocrisy. So Jesus saw right through it, right? Knowing their hypocrisy. He said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they present the problem. Should we pay taxes or shouldn't we pay taxes? Now the tax that they're talking about is what's called the poll tax. A poll tax was a tax that was put on every person just for being a part of the Roman Empire. So because you're in the Roman Empire, you had to pay a poll tax. And that poll tax was a denarius. Now, their tax system was a lot better. You just want to understand, here's what they were charged for their poll tax. One 
day's wage. Wouldn't that be nice to pay for your taxes? I'll happily pay one day's wage. I think the tax-free date is somewhere in April, May. So that's January, February, March, April, May to get tax-free. That's a lot of money. No? Anyway, that's what they're saying. A denarius. They had to pay one denarius. So Jesus, as he goes to answer the question, he says, well, bring me a denarius. Now the interesting thing here, Jesus didn't have one. There are a lot of people who say, oh yeah, Jesus was flowing in cash. He had money coming out of his ears. But what the scripture says is foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, not that having money is bad or good. He just didn't have it. So he had to ask somebody, give me a denarius. So they give him a denarius. Why did he ask for a denarius? There was all kinds of money. Gold, silver, and copper was the kind of money that was used in Rome. Copper could be minted by the, by the Senate. So it, it could have whatever they, they wanted to put on the copper. Copper was not worth so much. But anything above copper, silver or gold, was minted with Caesar's face. So that everybody knew he was above everything. The Republic and all those other things. So they do it. They bring it out before him. And so they, they bring out the, the denarius. And it says in verse 16, So they brought it and, they said, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's said, who's on the money? Caesar. And whose inscription? So you had two. His picture, the picture of Caesar, and then you had an inscription. You know what the inscription said? In essence, Caesar, the son of God. That's what the inscription said. Well, really it said, the son of divine Augustus. But Augustus was considered God, so he's saying, I'm the son of the divine God. On the back was a picture of his mother. Underneath the picture of his mother, it said, Pontifex Maximus. that sound familiar to anybody? Interesting. Well, it's basically title for high priest. So his mother's the high priest. On the other side, Caesar's declaring himself to be God. So Jesus says, who's on your money? Caesar is. Caesar is on the money. So what does he tell them to do? So Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That means give back to Caesar what's his. His face is on it. His image is on it. Give it back to him. But then Jesus didn't stop talking, right? So in essence, he says, pay your taxes. I wish he'd have said something different, but he didn't. Pay your taxes. Give to Caesar. He didn't say give Caesar more than he deserves. Just give him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But render unto God the things that are God's. Now I want you to back up and think about it. Whose image was on the denarius? Caesar, right? Whose image is on you? What does the word of God say? Book of Genesis, it says that he created them male and female. How did he do it? In the image of God, imago Deo, the image of God. So render unto God the things that are God's. All humanity, 
All of creation has been created in the image of God. Listen, when we look at the world, the reason why the world can get all up in arms (coughs) over issues of morality, but on one side of the mouth say that there is no God, and on the other side of the mouth say, but these are horrible things that are going on, this or that or the other. The reason they can do that is because they're made in the imago Deo. They're made in the image of God. According to Romans chapter 1, the Bible says it's not an issue of evidence of whether or not God exists. It's an issue of suppression. Suppression is the problem. Sin is the issue. I like my sin. So I push away the the image of God. I push it away. I suppress it in unrighteousness. Nobody goes to hell for the God they don't know. They go to hell for the God they do know. Who they suppress. In unrighteousness. Give to God the things that are God's. Every human being has the image of God upon him. Scripture says that the Pharisees and the Herodians were so blown away by his answer, they just stand there with their mouth open. They had nothing to throw back at them. Pay Caesar what you owe Caesar, give God what you owe God. Whose image? God's image? Man, we, we want to honor the Lord. We want to <coughs> render to Him what is His. And this is what God is, is calling for. But then, the next issue, he, he, so he, he passes the test of the tax. Consider those things. We're going to come back to them in a second. Next, he's given the, the test of the resurrection. The one thing everybody hated was taxes. The other thing people argued over was resurrection. Whether or not there's life after death. That, is that all that different today? Well, there's, you can pile up the same sides. Is there life after death or we just cease to exist, go off into oblivion? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Just live for what you can. Now, there is no tomorrow. And there are those who say there is. There is a, a designer, a creator that one day we will stand before. Well, that's the next group that walks up to Jesus. Look what it says in verse 18. Then some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to him and they asked him. So these guys don't believe in a resurrection. There's no life after death. There, there's no judgment day. We just live while we're here. And this is what they used to say in evidence for evidence of their belief that there was no life after death. They would say, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. That's going to come up again in a minute, isn't it? So they come to Jesus. They, they're pretty sure that they're, these are the smart guys. Sadducees are like the guys who put together this incredible argument. They think they got it all weaved together so that there's, there's no right answer. Right? You ever, you ever met guys who are really smart and give you a question there's no right answer to? Like, you know, is God all-powerful? Yes. Can he make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Hmm. Oh, you got me. You're right, there must not be a God. Because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because it's, it's a lame argument. That's why it doesn't make any sense. So, 
Here's the same kind of argument that they put together. Let's look at it. Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother shall take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. <coughs> Deuteronomy 25, 5. It's called the Leverite marriage. The Leverite marriage. Listen, in those days, if a woman died without child, she would starve to death. She has nothing. She doesn't own property. She can't go get a job like you can go get a job today. So part of God's welfare system was that if your brother's wife died and they were without child, that you were to raise up for her children so that she would have posterity, hope, inheritance, so that she would be able to hold on to the land and so that she could have a life. Uh, It wasn't a concept of wife swapping, but what it did do is it made brothers pay attention to who the other brother was marrying. You bring somebody home and another brother, look, hey, I might end up with her. (laughs) The doctrine of the Leverite marriage. Do you know that the Leverite marriage occurs in the lineage of Jesus Christ? In fact, the whole book of Ruth is about it. Ruth, who had no children, goes to the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And Boaz takes her as wife and gives birth to the lineage of David, Obed, who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to David. So the Leverite marriage, they got Jesus. Jesus can't say that's not okay because he's got it in his own line. But that was God's plan and purpose to take care of the woman so that she was not destitute, so she did not have nothing. Somebody came alongside and took care of her. Part of God's plan and purpose. So they put together this crazy deal, right? You get the crazy deal? Well, one guy marries this girl. She doesn't have any kids, so she goes to the next brother. There's seven of them. So she just goes from brother to brother to brother to brother to brother. The typical black widow, right? Because nobody has any kids and everybody dies before her. Man, that's crazy. Seven brothers, they all had her. Least of all, at the end, the woman dies. So just to make this argument a little more ridiculous, then, in the resurrection, who does she belong to? She was married to all of them. Oh, you got me. God's not going to be able to figure that one out at all. That pretty much puts a fork in the whole concept of the resurrection. Yeah. So, look at Jesus' response. Look at how Jesus responds to them. It says in verse 24, So Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Why are they mistaken? Because you don't know the Scripture, and what else? Power of God. Now, hold on to that. We're coming back. (coughs) For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Oh, oh, right now, somewhere, somebody in here is like, are you kidding me? I worked so hard to finally get married to this person, and now you're telling me that I get to heaven, I won't be married to him anymore? Well, yeah, but don't sweat it. You got time still. Enjoy the marriage you got. Some guys in here are going, oh, thank you, Jesus, so I get to heaven. (laughs) Not going to be married anymore. (laughs) 
See, you can tell by the laughter which side everybody's on, right? I'm not going to point any fingers. I saw who laughed first, though. I just... So, what's the point that Jesus is saying? Don't get hung up on the marriage part. Listen, it's not like that. See, here on earth we have our own families. And we raise our own children and our, our grandchildren and... And family is very important to us, right? But if we can only focus on my family, I have become uh, man-centered. See, when we get to heaven, we're part of God's family. And it's no longer mine. It's ours. And no longer is it my wife, but it's my sister. And we're united together under one Father in heaven, one family, one bond, all together. Jesus says, <coughs> you're confused because you don't know the Scripture. The Scripture tells us that marriage, that's for here, and it's a picture of the love and the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's given to us so that we can understand the love that exists within the Godhead. What are you talking about, Jackie? You're, I'm pretty sure you've lost it. Okay, well, in hermeneutics, there's something called the principle of first mention. Herman who? It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a, it's a concept of theology. You want to know about it? Come to apologetics. I'll, I'll explain it to you. But there's this principle in hermeneutics called the principle of first mention. It says, the first time something's mentioned in the scripture, it holds the key to unlocking its understanding and meaning. So Genesis chapter 2, one of the very first relationships that God creates. Very first relationship God creates. What is it? Between a man and a woman, what do we call it? Marriage. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. Supreme Court is a bunch of knuckleheads. Marriage is was created by God, not by the Supreme Court. And I don't really care what they rule. They weren't elected. There are nine appointed justices to sit around and argue about whether or not something is constitutional. Is marriage in the Constitution? No. So you know what it says in the Tenth Amendment? The Tenth Amendment says if something is not in the Constitution, it has nothing to do with the federal government, and it goes directly to the states. And states are to make their own rules up as they go along for those things which are not listed in the Constitution. So I don't really care what they say. And if, if the state don't get it right, I'll find a state that does. The idea, they can't rule on it. God does. So what did he say? Genesis uh, chapter 2, chapter, yeah, chapter 2, he says... For this reason, a man will leave his mother and, mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. First time that word's used in the Bible. One. It's not in the Hebrew, yachid, which means one and only. It's a Hebrew word, echad. Echad. It's uh, the way you would say one if you wanted one cluster of grapes. You with me? So... Fast forward a couple of books, and so we come to Deuteronomy. We get to the book of Deuteronomy, and it says, The great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is... Oh. What word did they use there? 
Echad. Why they use Echad? Because it was the principle of first mention, the key to unlocking Echad is between a husband and a wife. Husband and a wife, that they become one, unified, together, to express love and care. And, and it's a picture of what already exists within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why God created men. So that man might be able to express and enjoy that which God already has. They become one. Echad. One. Scripture lays out for us, that's the purpose behind marriage. Purpose behind marriage. Can, can two people be equal and have different roles? Well, the Bible says you can. I know a lot of people don't like this part. It's not so popular, but I'm sorry, it's in there. What part are you talking about? Well, the Bible says, husbands love your wives, Christ love a church, and wives, what's that favorite word? Oh, it's hard to even say it, isn't it? Oh, submit. That's submit. <coughs> submit. And you think, that can't possibly be God's design. Really? Are you sure? Within the Trinity, do we see that? We see the Father, and we see the Son place himself voluntarily beneath or below the Father, in submission to the Father, all the Father sends me, I will do. All the Father asks me to say, I will say. Doesn't he model that same thing? Is Jesus less God than God the Father? No. Less valuable than God the Father? No. Does he have a different role? Yes. He has a different role. He, he is the author of salvation for, for us all, right? He went to the cross. So we see, we see the, the picture, the purpose behind it. But what the Sadducees are trying to make it is it's a, all about my family and my group. And now this woman's been with all these people. And, and I'm surely God can't figure it out. I've also heard like this. You know, people have died for the last several thousand years. And, and their body decomposed and became part of the dirt. And the dirt grew up into the grass. And the cow came and ate the grass. And then those particles went into the cow. And then somebody ate the cow. And the particles of that dead person were in the cow. And now they're in the live person and it become a part of his body and then he died and now they're, they're joining they got parts that belong to each other what in the world is God going to do in the resurrection are you kidding me you ever read the beginning in the beginning God created from nothing the heavens and the earth he don't need your parts he doesn't need it he can make you just like you are out of nothing. He's pretty good at it. So it's similar type of an argument. They come together with this argument about marriage. So Jesus says, look, here's your mistake. You don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. So our relationship in heaven is different than our relationship on earth. Our relationship in heaven is one giant family with one father together, brothers and sisters with the Lord God Almighty. But then he goes on in verse 26. He says, but concerning the dead, <coughs> that you might know that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage? Well, of course they had read that. How God spoke to Moses and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he used their own words against them. I am the God of the living not of the dead. What does he mean? You see, he's using present tense. 700 years 
after Jacob died. So Abraham's dead, Isaac's dead, and then 700 years after Jacob dies. So they're all buried in the cave of Machpelah. One day, I hope to go there. It's in Israel. It's hard to get in there. People shoot at you there, so, so we don't usually go to visit that spot. But if we ever get to, I want to see it. Why? Because it's the bones of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you kidding me? Not the bones, like a pile of bones, and that might be him. No, it's him. We know who's buried in there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Leah. They're buried right there in the cave of Machpelah. It's there. You can drive up to it. Well, you can get there. And you can go in and you can see it. But listen to what God says in the present tense, standing at the burning bush. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's he say? I am the God. What's he mean? He said, I'm not the God of the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. This body we carry around, you and me, this is just like our car that we drive. You guys ever seen my car? I hold it together with bailing wire and duct tape. People ask me every once in a while, Jackie, just go get another car. No, because I do this to every car I have. I just as soon keep the old one and ob- obliterate it, then buy a new one and obliterate it. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys. Those of you who have borrowed, the, loaned me a car, now you're going to say, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> they don't make a car, I can't blow up. I don't know, it's me. But it's just a vehicle, right? And when that vehicle finally runs out, it's going to stop running. That's this body. When its body's done, it's going to stop running. But the spirit, the soul, that goes to God. To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord, right before God. We're with Him. We're with Him. Looking at his face. Either awaiting judgment if you're unsaved or enjoying his presence if you are saved. Standing before Almighty God. Sometimes I tell people, because people get sick, right? And unfortunately in, in my job, I've had an opportunity to see a lot of people die. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the, I guess, one of the downers of the job. Uh, I tend to be at a lot of bedsides when, when people go home. And I always tell those who are left the same thing. Listen, that body's just a machine. You don't know when your loved one is there or gone. I can plug that body into a machine and keep it alive for a long time. And the eyes will never open. And there will never be any consciousness a part of that body. But we can keep the body alive. The body's a machine. And it's going to try to run as long as it can. But the one you love, I believe in a merciful God. So when when they stop being able to communicate and talk and and connect, then as far as I'm concerned, they're already gone. They're with Jesus, absent from the body. I used to have a vehicle that I'd turn it off and it would keep running. You guys ever have one of those? You turn off it. Go like that for a while. And it'd be embarrassing, right? You turn it off and try to walk in, try to get far enough away from it before somebody goes, whose car is that still running? I don't know. You guys had that. I had that. Sometimes the body's like that. It keeps trying. And sometimes those things are hard to watch because we're, 
we're afraid there's a lot of suffering going on. I don't necessarily believe that. I think it's just a machine tries to keep running. But the Spirit's gone. The Spirit is with the Lord. He's not the God of the dead. What's He the God of? He's the God of the living. <clears throat> He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So He says, you are therefore greatly mistaken. You are greatly mistaken. That means, <coughs> that word, you are mistaken and greatly mistaken, is the word, both cases, deceived. What are they deceived about? Well, they're deceived because they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe that God is the God of the living. They don't believe in the things that God has said about Himself. Well, why don't they believe those things? Is it because there's not enough evidence around them that those things exist? Is it, is it, is it that there's, there's not enough evidence that they can hold to and use their fallen reason to figure out how everything comes together so that they can say, well, yes, that's obvious epistemologically that, that if I utilize this evidence that I've gathered together and I use my incredible intellect, I can find a way where I can see my way to God. Really? Well, that's a lot of faith, but it's a lot of faith in the wrong place. A lot of faith in you. What's their issue? They love their sin. And they won't repent. They love their sin. And they won't repent. And because they love their sin and they won't repent, they are in unbelief. And because they're in unbelief, really doesn't matter how much Jesus tells them. They don't believe it anyway. They don't believe it. They don't grab a hold of it. They don't lay hold of those things. <clears throat> they are deceived. Why are they deceived? Because they have no understanding of the Scripture. No understanding of the Scripture and they don't know the power of God. Why don't they understand the Scripture? The Bible says the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. But why is the natural man natural? Why is the carnal man carnal? Well, the Bible tells us because he loves his sin. Because in order to have those eyes opened and have the things necessary, all that's required in any man, woman, or child is to repent. To ask God to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and put our faith and trust in Him and not in ourselves. But because men won't do that, they can't see. They're blind. They come to try to get Jesus, but you can't get Him. Jesus is God. He knows what He's doing. He's got it all together. And for those guys who are standing across from Him, trying to trap Him and, and put Him to death, don't you know that their Savior is looking at them saying, in three days, I'm going to die for you. In three days, I'm going to die for your intellect. I'm going to die for your understanding. I'm going to die for your sin. And three days after that, I'm going to rise again. So that you can be justified, sanctified, and glorified. I'm going to rise again so that you can have a relationship with Almighty God. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Don't you know that's Jesus, the way Jesus saw him? Not his enemy. Just part of his creation. Stamped. With the image of God. So render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render unto God 
the things that are God's. You have the image of God stamped on you. Come to him and repent. And he will make you a fisher of men. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stare at me and let's pray.